Well, good morning, church, and praise God that Jesus has paid it all. Amen? Happy 4th of July to all of you, and we're so thankful for our country this morning and the freedom that we have to gather and assemble freely and worship as brothers and sisters in God's family this morning. So praise God for what he's given us in our country. For those of you who are new to Wheaton Bible Church, we have a great opportunity for you to plug in more. Next week at our 1030 hour, you can join us in the atrium in Connect Central for our growth track, the step one of that. It'll be a great way to connect with other people and to dive into what life at Wheaton Bible Church can look like and ask any questions you might have. So I really recommend if you haven't done that and you're relatively new, even if you've been coming for six months or a year, it's a great way to get plugged in and get to know some staff. So please join us for that. Psalm 97, 1 through 6, calls us to worship this morning, and it reminds us of who God is. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. Let's stand and worship together.
please join me in a prayer of confession and forgiveness. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Dear Lord, we come to you today in a posture of need. We are in need of our great physician because we are sick with sin. We come confessing to you, our God of wonderful, matchless grace, assured of your open arms for us. We confess to you specifically today our lack of love, that we have been impatient, we have been unkind, that we envy and boast, that we have been arrogant and rude, we have been self-seeking, easily angered, and resentful. Lord, as, <clears throat> as we confess, we ask for your forgiveness through faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And we ask that you would fill us with your perfect love, that we may be the light to the world that you have called us to be. And Lord, as we confess and repent, would you hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. May we remember that they who are forgiven little love little, and may we remember that through Christ we have indeed been forgiven so much and so empower us to love much. Lord, we are assured and trust what your word says, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We love you, Lord. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate God's grace. grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will
next song is another new one by our organist, Tony Payne. And it's about the sweetness of being in God's presence. And so we sang it at our worship night in May, but Darren will sing it once and then we'll all join after that. In the secret of his presence, there my soul delights to hide. Oh, how precious are the I spend at Jesus' side. Earthly cares cannot distract me, nor can trials bring me low. For when Satan comes to tempt me to the secret place I words like that that remind me of the gospel of grace, that we enter into the sweetness of his presence 
and leaving, we bear the image of his face as his image bearers. It is in the presence of Jesus that his image is restored in us. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Solomon, and I am one of the preaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. If you're wondering, how can you say that? I haven't seen him before. That's okay. I am also the campus pastor at TVC, and Hannibal and Rob have hidden me there for a little bit. And this is my first time here with you all, which is a pleasure, a grace, and I am grateful for it. Your brothers and sisters in Christ and Streamwood greet you and are grateful to call you familia even across zip codes. And, and, and I just want to say a couple of welcomes. If you are joining us for the first time, I am so glad that you are here. I am so glad that you're in this space. Katie has given you an opportunity to get to know us as a church. And so I would recommend, highly recommend that you join us for Growth Track. If you just go to our website, you can find the information there. And I also want to welcome not just you who are joining us here on campus, but those of you who are joining us online. We're grateful and we cannot wait for the day when we can join together in person all together at the same time. And the last welcome that I have, you might not notice, but if you look around, there is a, a, a younger crowd that might be in this space with us. This is a family worship Sunday, and so kids, if you are here, I am so grateful that you're worshiping with us this Sunday. I am grateful that you're here with us, and I just want you to know and that in this space, we are all family. Kids, you are not the next generation. You are this generation of the church right now, and we're grateful that you are worshiping with us. If you have any little ones in here, parents, I'm a parent of little ones, and I just want to say it is okay to let them stay here and make noise. By God's grace, their noise means that there is life in this family. So don't feel like on account of me, you have to leave in this space, okay? Those are all my welcomes. Together as a, I know, it's a lot, I talk a lot. People at TVC can tell you that. Together as a family, we get the chance this morning to celebrate. We get the chance to celebrate what God is doing in and among us and what we just sang, reminding us of the gospel that we sing to each other from what we just read, reminding us of the gospel that is built in not just in the first four books of the New Testament, but even in the gospel of the Psalms. It's to the Psalms that I want to direct you this morning as we step into another rhythm of worship that the Lord has given us. Psalm 96.7 says this, describes our worship by saying, calling God's people to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. This morning, that's what we have done as a group of, of God's people in this local outpost of new creation life. We have ascribed, attributed, gave the credit to God Almighty for his glory and strength. But now as we step into that rhythm of worship that I talked about, this rhythm of giving to God, I want us to pay attention to the very next verse in that psalm. Psalm 96, talking about our worship, says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. You see, people of God, worship is singing, Worship is the public reading of God's word. Worship is the participating in the preaching of his word together, but worship is also uh, uh, communicating our dependence, our trust, and our gratitude to God in giving. And so this morning, I invite you to enter into that rhythm of worship, uh, of giving, to bring your offering like Psalm 96 encourages in the way we do in this particular context. You can go to our website, weinbible.org give. You can give at the offering boxes on the way back. However you give, my encouragement to you this morning is to worship by giving, to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, having come together before his throne and bringing an offering, not just of praise, but of resources recognizing the one who gave them to you in the first place. Amen? Well, let's continue in our worship, not just by giving, but by praying. Would you guys pray with me? King of all creation, king over every nation this morning, we thank you for your hand in history. Your hand that guides and establishes, that raises and yes, even tears down nations. We are grateful on this 4th of July for the civil and religious freedoms that we have in this country. 
We are grateful for all those who have made the ultimate sacrifice, giving up their lives, that we might live in peace and in freedom. And yes, Lord, even in that gratitude, we also recognize in this freedom, it's just a picture of the ultimate freedom that we have in Christ. Now able to live in righteousness and worship you with clean hearts because of the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we pray for the leaders of our country, that you would give them wisdom so that they can lead in honesty, integrity, and fairness, that you would give everyone at every level of government a desire to promote justice and live in truth. But like that picture of freedom is a picture of the freedom we have in Christ this morning, we are are grateful for your grace like we just sang. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so we ask this morning that you would continue to do that all over the world through your missionaries. This morning we specifically pray for your work through Josh and Melanie as they return to the mission field in just a few weeks. We pray for their family, especially for their little ones as they transition back. Pray that you would give them wisdom and compassion as they introduce people to the gospel, as they serve among refugees with the love of Christ. We pray not just for Josh and Melanie, but for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, that you would strengthen them and encourage them this morning as they worship you. We pray for our local church here in West Chicago, up in Streamwood, and through Iglesia de Pueblo. We pray that you would make us into outposts of your new creation life where you have placed us. This morning, would you position us under the authority and the safety of your word that we might live lives that are centered on Christ and his gospel? And we ask all of this in the name of the Jesus who made it possible. Amen. Well, at this time, I do want to invite up two of God's missionaries that we've had the privilege of sending from our church family, Josh and Melanie. We've asked them to share their Jonah story with our church family as both a celebration of what God has done and a challenge for us all. Josh, Melanie, get out of your way. Good morning, Wheaton Bible Church. I'm Josh Zimmerman. This is my wife, Melanie. We've been missionaries with Wheaton Bible Church since 2012, sent to Europe with Greater Europe Mission, and we were asked this morning just to share a brief testimony about responding faithfully to God's call. Yeah, I'm really excited that Wheaton Bible Church is studying the book of Jonah because that's kind of where our missionary journey began almost 10 years ago. For those of you who go to Place for You, you might remember that we studied the book of Jonah, Priscilla Shirer's study, And it really impacted me how she talked about the interrupted life and what a privilege it is to be interrupted by God in our own plans that we have for our life and to pursue his plans for our life, that that is a life that is significant and has meaning. And we've really seen that to be true in our missions journey since it began many years ago, um, that when God interrupts us and, and guides us on his path, that he really brings us to great significance and meaning. And one of the biggest ways that we saw that happened in 2016. We were living in London at the time and really loving it, having a great time in London, really starting to get into the ministry and find our place when suddenly God made known to us the huge need that was present on a tiny little island in Greece just off the coast of Turkey that was being flooded with thousands and thousands of refugees who were really hungry for the gospel. And um, at first we, we told God, could you please send anybody other than us? And he said no. And um, so we really had to come to grips, okay, Lord, we're going to do this. But this is really scary. There was so much about Lesbos that was very intimidating, very unknown. And um, that was a really hard and scary thing for us to do. 
And through that process, I remember that as we were trying to discern which direction to go, um, one of the main themes that kept coming up in prayer was God asking us a question, do you trust me? And part of the testimony for me was honestly asking, Josh, do you trust me that I love Melanie more than you do? Do you trust me that I care about your family and your family's future and stability more than you do? And do you trust me that I have your good and not your destruction or ruin in mind? And this was such a huge thing for us to come to grips with because we realized in that moment, you know, if we truly trust in the goodness of God, that he has our good in mind, a good that's better than any good that I can contrive, then it frees us up, if we can say it that way, to step out in faithful obedience to a call that God puts before us because we know it's leading us into good and not into harm. Not only that, though, as we step out in faithful obedience, we saw this in our lives that our faith grew exponentially. Things that we never thought were possible, God was making possible because we made ourselves simply available. <clears throat> Things that we saw hundreds of people coming to faith and being baptized. People groups that were previously closed to the gospel coming in waves to know him. And it starts with just a simple step of obedience. Now even on the airplane as we were coming in for a landing, we were looking at each other and saying, do we trust him? And the answer was yes, because we know that he's good and because he's good, we can trust him. Because we can trust him, then we can step out in faith into a call. So as we head back to the field next week, we're expectant of the things that God will lead us into and just want to encourage you all to think about what is the interruption and what is the things that God is putting before you and calling you into. Maybe it's moving overseas, but maybe it's simply just having a conversation with a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker that talks about Christ, someone that God has laid on your um, someone that God has laid on your mind and your hearts. Step out in confidence because God has good in mind for you. Thanks. The storm raged on, threatening to destroy the boat while Jonah ran away from God's mission. The mariners asked Jonah why the storm had come upon them. Jonah told them that he was running away from God's mission, and they were furious with him and asked, what can we do to calm the seas? Jonah told them, throw me into the sea and the storm will calm. Nervously, they listened and threw Jonah into the water. The storm calmed and the men rejoiced and praised God. As they drifted from Jonah, a great fish came to swallow him up. Jonah would stay there for three days and three nights. Well, thank you, Josh and Melanie. That's both an encouragement and, if I'm honest, a, a challenge, right? How we might follow the Lord even when the question is, do we trust him? Do we trust him to be good as he defines goodness? This morning, we continue our one-story summer series on Jesus and Jonah, entering into the story of Jonah, someone who did not obey God, who did the exact opposite of committing to the call of God. And this is a story that also points us to the one who ultimately did obey God, who did not run from the call of God to go to people, wicked people, to save them. This morning we searched the scriptures to see how the whole Bible in general, and yes, even this book of Jonah in specific, points us to Jesus, points us to the Jesus who saves us. It is a story that is often crowded out by a, a miraculous fish, 
A miracle fish that we either dismiss as a uh, a fantastical children's story or even use to hammer a nail in the coffin of a faith that believes in a serpent who tempts, a, a donkey who talks, and now, yes, even a fish who saves. Unfortunately, we are so distracted with marine research that, that we, are, we, we miss the mighty hand of God. And so this morning, we are going to work our way through the rest of chapter 1 together, all the way to the miracle fish, but along the way, focusing, refocusing our attention on the miracle-working God. A God who works miracles not just to save his prophet gone rogue, but to save a people gone rogue. Like Rob said last week, we are all Jonah. In different ways and at different times in our lives, we all wrestle with God and what it truly means for him to be consistently compassionate and gracious to all kinds of rebels. We we all run, and we all need a Savior who did not run. We need someone who obeyed when we could not. We need this story to point us to Jesus. So without further ado, let's do what we do every Sunday and dive into the Bible. Position ourselves under the authority of his word that he might change us by his spirit. Our text this morning is Jonah 1, 5 through 17, so if you can go ahead and turn there. And if you're new to the Bible, I do also want to say two things. One, I'm really glad you're here. We're a community of broken people that are trying to point other broken people to the only one who can fix us, Jesus. And so if you're new to the Bible, it's okay if you're like, Jonah, I have no idea what that is, Eric. No shame in going to the table of contents. And even if you're not new to the Bible, no shame in going to the table of contents to find Jonah. But if you would turn there with me, and if you're connecting with us online, I do also want to say, please grab your Bibles and join us. If you, as we always do, if you're able, please stand as we read from the Word of God, Jonah 1, 5 through 17. People of God, hear God's Word from Jonah 1, 5 through 17. All the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. You may be seated. Categories and eyes, storm surges and wind speed. Growing up in Miami, Florida, I wasn't ever worried about inches of snow. I was always looking at inches of rain and wind speed, hurricane categories. You see, where I grew up, we didn't have snow days. We had hurricane days. Days spent hoping that the power didn't go out and and counting down the minutes until the eye of the storm actually approached. A a, a time when, when everything would go creepy quiet, like everything had turned off all of a sudden. Now, if you've never been in a hurricane, the quiet of an eye of the storm could be pretty deceptive because the eye of the storm doesn't actually last forever. Eventually, the storm will start up again. This morning, we step back onto the deck of a ship that is caught up in the middle of a hurricane of godlike proportions. And by the end of our text this morning, that hurricane will be quiet. Not temporarily like the eye of a storm, but permanently because of the hand of God. A calm that leaves us wondering, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But that's not where we are right now. At the beginning of our story, the hurricane is still raging. The the, the sea is still violent, and we are on the deck of the ship trying to find anything, something to hold on to. So I want to point to you to what I think this text gives us to hold on to as we experience the power of God in this scene. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. That's the anchor point for our text this morning. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. But in order to trust this God, we have to see this God as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be. You see, I think the text actually reveals four core realities about the God we are called to trust. The four core realities that this text reveals is that he is the God who notices. He is the God who made the sea and the dry land. He is the God who does as he pleases, and he is the God who provides. And so, knowing that this ship feels more like a roller coaster than a sunset cruise at this point in the story... As the waves crash and we hear the echoes of God's mercy in the storm, I want you to be on the lookout for this God who notices. This God who made the sea and the dry land. This God who does as he pleases. This God who provides. All because underneath it all, we are being called to trust in the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. Well, the first core reality that I have given you in this story is that God is a God who notices. He is not disconnected. He is not detached from his image bearers. You see, God called Jonah to preach against the Ninevites. Why? The text says at the beginning of this book that the reason God calls Jonah to preach against the Ninevites is because their wickedness had come up before him. In other words, God noticed them. He noticed and he sent his prophet to warn them. Unfortunately, his prophet decided to go in the complete opposite direction. But not far behind Jonah is the God who pursues and the God who notices. Enter Hurricane Mercy. The hurricane hits, and the text tells us in verse 5, all the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You see, you and I entering into the story, we look around as we hold on to the guardrail and, and wipe our eyes from all the rain, and we see exactly the opposite of what we expect to see. 
hardened sailors with terror in their lungs, pleading with the heavens for help, asking for, for their idols to come save them. And caught in the crossfire of God's mercy, these sailors recognize something in this storm, that it's not just a regular storm, that this is a storm of godlike proportions. They send up a flare to their idols, and even uh, along the way, they, they, they try to help their idols kind of save them as well. So they go down to the cargo hold, and they come up, and they're emptying the cargo hold to try to lighten the ship. And in between their have mercies and please save us, they get interrupted by something, or, or better yet, someone that they uncover in the cargo hold. The text tells us Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a great sleep, a deep sleep. Their mystery passenger who had joined them last minute and had paid in cash had crashed at the bottom of the ship in the middle of a hurricane. Spiritual numbness has, has rendered Jonah unconscious. Whatever happened in his head and his heart that brought him down to Joppa, that brought him down into a ship and now down into a cargo hold has, has rendered him comatose in his rebellion. Whatever happened in his heart to convince him that he was doing the right thing, disobeying the God of all creation, had him in a deep sleep and not even extreme danger could wake him. Shaking Jonah awake, the text tells us in verse 6, the captain tells him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. What is wrong with you? Jonah rubs the sleep out of his eyes and is trying to fix the numbness in his arms. You know that numbness when you sleep on one side too long? He's trying to figure out what's happening in, in that in-between state where he's not sure if he's dreaming or maybe still in the nightmare when he hears a voice that sounds like the voice of God. The same words that haunted him to sleep, get up. But this time it's not get up and go, it's get up and call. Not get up and go, but get up and call. He finally realizes what in the world is happening. There, there's this, this Gentile captain that is screaming at him. A Gentile captain that is pointing God's prophet back to God when it should be the complete opposite. Pray, man. Hearing the names of every god his crew has tried to pledge their allegiance to, the captain demands Jonah to add the name of, their, of his god to their desperate god roulette. Maybe we'll hit the right god who sent the storm and we'll be saved. Pray, because we don't stand a chance. Maybe your god will notice us so that we won't die out here. The captain's demand echoes here because this is precisely what got Jonah in trouble in the first place. If you remember, God took notice of the Gentiles, of these Ninevites, so that they might not perish. So he sent Jonah to preach. Jonah refused. And it is Jonah's disobedience that has now endangered the lives of everyone on this ship. The captain is speaking more than he knows. His maybe is a certainty without him even realizing it because the person he's talking to is the only person on the ship who knows exactly what's going on. And he's talking about the only God who can actually do something about it. The God who notices. Who noticed Nineveh. And who will even notice these sailors by the end of the story and will save them. Even if it's not in the way that they think they will be saved. Trust the God who notices. 
who does the unthinkable on purpose, the God who is merciful enough to send a storm that stops us on our path of disobedience, who notices us in our suffering even and especially when it is self-inflicted, who loves us too much to leave us in it, who sent not just another prophet but did the unthinkable and sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save us, the God who notices and does the unthinkable on purpose, not as some uh, emotionally charged reaction to a hurricane of a situation, but who in his wisdom, his love, his mercy, and his grace does the unthinkable and dies for us. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The reason we can trust this God is not just because he's a God who notices, not just because he's a God who cares, but because he is the one who has the power to act on that care. In other words, we trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose because he can do the unthinkable. Because he is the God who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, he is the all-powerful creator God, sovereign over everything. It is this God that the captain unknowingly calls Jonah to pray to, and yet this scene takes this unexpected turn because the very next thing that happens is not that Jonah prays, but that the sailors take action. In Jonah's inaction, it is those who are far from God that are taking action. Look at verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. We have to remember at this point of the story that the sailors still have no idea what is happening. Right? They're still trying to figure out what is going on. Jonah knows what's happening. We know what's happening because we're reading the story and we're good Bible studiers, students. But the sailors have no idea, so they, they try to figure it out by, by doing what they knew to do. They, they cast lots. And if you don't know what lots are, lots are the, I was trying to search for an illustration to try to communicate it. They are the ancient equivalent of uh, a game I played when I was a kid and probably still play sometimes at schoolyards is Ball Never Lies. You see, I play basketball sometimes. I know it doesn't look like I do, but playing basketball, if you play on a court that doesn't have referees, there's not a third party to make calls, and if you get in what I would call a, um, a friendly disagreement, someone would call ball never lies, and whoever is arguing about the call would step up to the three-point line and shoot. And if the basketball gods were to smile on you and agree with your assessment of the situation, you would make the shot. If you were to miss it, well, clearly the basketball gods do not agree with you on your perception of the situation. Ball never lies. In the same way, casting lots was this way of taking some random act and trusting the gods to guide it, looking for the will of gods through a game of chance. But the scriptures tell us something a little bit different. Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. People of God, we know that nothing is left up to chance, that God is in control of everything, that the, even a game of lots there is no random eeny, meeny, miny, mo. God is very purposefully singling out Jonah to these sailors. The lots are cast. The wind is whipping the sails. The rain is pounding on the deck. And the boat is threatening to tear itself apart on the waves. And Jonah draws the short straw. And in the middle of a hurricane, these sailors, they, they, they load this moment with buckshot. 
And they fill the space between them with, with questions that are marked by anxiety and panic and frustration, question after question. The text tells us in verse 8, they start with this one, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? Probably the most important question that they're going to ask, at least at the beginning. Why is this happening? Who is responsible? It is an opportunity for Jonah to explain himself. The lot only pointed them in the right direction after all. They still don't really know what's going on. Did, did we offend Jonah? Uh, are, are we aiding and abetting a criminal? Have we insulted, somehow displeased a new God that we don't know about? Who is responsible? Well, the reality is that Jonah's sin at this point in time has just been found out and found out as something that no longer just affects Jonah. It has endangered everyone around him. People of God, that is how sin works. Our sin does not just affect us. There is no such thing as a private sin. It affects everyone around us. Our sin echoes across the generations and within the rooms of our home. Our sin makes its way up the block to our neighbors and across the office to our coworkers. Our sin makes its way through our life groups and jumps the rows in our worship center. Sin contaminates because sin is a lot like radiation. And it is Jesus who takes that radiation. Because sin is so bad, because sin contaminates so strongly, God loves us too much to not expose us. God loves us too much to leave our sin in the dark. Or better yet, God loves us too much to leave us in the dark with our sin. Because he does it, he does that exposing in the most unthinkable of ways. Because God does not let our spiritual numbness stay the way that it is. He brings us to spiritual life and he does it through his mercy. The mercy of Jesus Christ that, that took on the contamination of sin and died for us. Who is responsible I am, you are, and yet Jesus is the one who took on our sin for us and died. It is Jesus, because of his mercy and his love, that he has taken on the responsibility for our sin. That is the message of the gospel. But that is not the last question that these sailors asked Jonah. No, their, their questions start to, to, to compile, to compound, and they start saying, what, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? You can feel the panic as the question goes question upon question, and, and what you might not notice is in all of these questions, these are fundamental questions of identity. Who are you? I want you to remember the context. What they're trying to find out is not just find a new friend and kind of get to know Jonah. They're trying to find the God that is behind this hurricane that they're in. And in the ancient times, people worshiped all kinds of gods. Personal gods, family gods, national gods. It's actually not too different from our day and age. And it means that their questions of who are you is an attempt to figure out whose are you. The ancients knew something, knew something that we often regret. We become what we worship. It's the title of a book, a uh, New Testament scholar, Greg Beale, writing about idolatry in the New Testament, we become what we worship, and he says this insightful little statement in his book. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. 
Like any good preacher, I can appreciate the alliteration in that sentence, but more than that, there's something deep that's happening in there. In other words, what is core to our identity is what we believe can save us. What we believe has the power to define us. Whatever we pledge our allegiance to. And the question of these sailors confront Jonah just as much as they confront us in this moment. Whose are you? You see, we were made in the image of God. We were made to worship God. And those two realities combine in our identity to say that our identity is rooted in our worship. And it goes both ways. You see, our worship shapes our identity as much as our identity shows what we worship. Whose you are determines who you are. And who you are shows everyone whose you are. So Jonah, tell us who you are so that we can figure out whose you are and why this hurricane is still here. For the first time in our story, Jonah opens his mouth and speaks, I am a Hebrew. I don't know if you noticed this, but Jonah actually picked the last question to answer first. He takes their questions out of order. I am a Hebrew is the answer to their final question, from what people are you? Like many of us, Jonah has disordered his priorities. He has identified himself by something other than God. For Jonah, his, his national and, and, and racial affiliation has made its way to the top of his list, and this is what he leads with, which actually becomes another breadcrumb to the answer of why in the world Jonah is running in the first place. You see, the beauty of the book of Jonah is that we actually don't find out why he's running until the very end of the book. But the writer, God himself, puts breadcrumbs along the way to tell us who Jonah is, and in this scene, we find out that Jonah is tied to his country before he is tied to his God. It was easy to run from an assignment given by that God to go to another country. An assignment that left the chance, just at least the chance open, that God might forgive these Ninevites, these, these enemies of Israel, leaving God's people open to potential danger. God, your military strategy is all wrong. I don't think you get how the world works. Jonah's apparent disbelief in the goodness of God has fueled his escape. I am a Hebrew. The question for us is what would we put in first place? Is it our career? Is it our family? Is it our ethnicity? I am Latino. That's what I struggle with. I am a pastor. I am a Solomon. Or maybe is it even my country? I am an American. Whatever the case may be, all of these are good and important priorities. The problem is when we make a good priority into a God priority. When we get things out of order. And Jonah here confronts us with the disordering of his priorities. Who are you? Now, I don't want to be too hard on Jonah because he does keep answering the questions, you'll notice. I worship the Lord. 
I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. So, so at least he gets to God, praise God, that he gets to God to talk to these people that are far from God. That word that says, that is translated as worship is actually the word that's been translated in other places as fear. I, I fear the Lord. And yet even in this statement, the words feel a little bit flat coming out the mouth of a runaway prophet. Really, Jonah? You fear the Lord, the, the, the God of heaven. The God who, who made the sea that is raging around this boat right now. The God that Psalm 95 describes as the great God, the great king above all gods, the one who owns the sea because he made it, the one whose hands formed the dry land. Really, you're, really, Jonah, your actions are speaking so loudly, I don't think I can hear your words right now. Jonah clearly admits the power and sovereignty of God, and yet his words don't seem to have the conviction we would expect from a prophet. Powerful words that have been emptied of their meaning by disobedience. And yet, the text tells us that they were not emptied of their power. Look at the very next verse, verse 10. This terrified the sailors. And they asked, what, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The irony is that these sailors who are so far from God find out about the God of heaven and fear this God more than the guy who was supposed to know this God. Jonah is paying lip service and these sailors actually fear the God of heaven. And all that seems to escape the terror that has wrapped them itself around their necks is this question, what have you done? And yet the God who noticed Nineveh has noticed them. The God who made the sea is working not just to save Jonah, but to save these sailors that were once far from him but are yet made in his image. We trust the God who made everything when he does the unthinkable because we trust that he has a purpose in it even when we can't see it yet. Especially when we can't see it yet. Even in the middle of storms we don't fully understand. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose not only because he will do the unthinkable and notice undeserving sinners to warn them and, and give them mercy, save them by mercy, but because as the creator he can do the unthinkable. As creator, this God, unlike impotent idols that cannot save, delights in saving his image bearers. Even if it's not always how we want it or how we think we need it. Because this is the God, point number three, that does as he pleases. The terror of the sailors is interrupted by the hurricane as it continues to whip around the ship. The volume is getting turned to 11 as they turn to Jonah and they say, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah's answer is as confusing as his creed in verse 9. He tells him, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. If you've been tracking with the story, you recognize that there's been something conspicuously absent about Jonah this whole time. Jonah has yet to pray like the captain told him to. He has yet to ask God for help like the sailors have asked their gods. He, in fact, doesn't even say anything about God in this answer when they ask him what they should do. He's so focused on them. He takes responsibility for what happens. It is my fault, and, and he recognizes what he, was done, what he has done to them. My fault that this great storm has come upon you. It's noble. He's taking responsibility, and yet he still manages to not acknowledge the God who is coming after him. For all his nobility, he is still running from God. 
He is endangering the people around him. Notice what his suggestion is. Instead of jumping or praying or even repenting, Jonah is asking these sailors to become complicit in first-degree murder. And at first, these sailors, at least in a noble way, have refused. Verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Shocked by what Jonah has just told them to do, these sailors try to fix the problem another way. After all, they're listening to a man who says he's running from the God that he's saying we can appease by throwing him overboard. Who's to say that he's right? Who's to say he even knows this God well enough to tell us what will appease this God or not? But as we all find out one way or another, you cannot turn back time. There is no rowing back to land. Jonah has disobeyed and the sailors try as hard as they might, cannot undo Jonah's sins. On your own, there are no do-overs because the wages of sin is death. Faced with their inability to return, these sailors, unlike Jonah, turn and pray. They fill the prayerless silence of Jonah with their own pleas for mercy, not from their powerless gods, but from the God that they now acknowledge as the only one that has true power. Look at the text. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Notice that they use the name of God. When it's all caps like that, Lord, it is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Afraid that they're going to somehow be implicated in his death by this deity that they have now come to fear, that they are still learning about. These sailors essentially say, you know, we're doing what we think you want us to do. Please be merciful. We recognize your power. You are the one who does as you please. That phrase is not uh, an innocent little phrase in the text. It actually shows up multiple times in the Bible, and I'm not going to take you on a trip through all of the Bible because I was told I do not have the 50 minutes I usually would take for your sake and mine. But I will point you to one section in the Bible, Psalm 115, 3 through 4, brings up this phrase, and it says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. Every time this phrase shows up in the Bible, God is being compared to idols. His power versus their powerlessness. His ability to save versus their inability to save. The one who does whatever he pleases is unlike idols who are incapable of action and unable to rescue. These sailors have stumbled upon, or better yet, been introduced to the God who rules over all creation. And he has revealed the powerlessness of their idols with his power. And they see it. Out of options, the sailors, they, they take Jonah, they throw him overboard. And it turns out that, that their god, Roulette, has somehow landed on the only true god because the sea, the raging sea, grew calm. The one who does as he pleases did what it pleased him to do as he pursued his runaway prophet and as he revealed himself to sailors made in his image. The immediate nature of this hurricane disappearance has marked the sailors, the text tells us. If they feared God before, the text says now that they greatly feared the Lord. And they offer a, a sacrifice to him. They make vows to him. 
Now the question here is not whether or not they are saved, but that they are asking, who is this God that even the winds and the waves obey him? The God who does as he pleases was pleased not just to punish his prophet, but to reveal himself to people outside of Israel. One theologian points out the incredible irony in this passage calling Jonah's activity as his anti-missionary activity. And the irony is that in Jonah's anti-missionary activity, God still does the unthinkable and makes him a missionary communicating the mercy of that God to people that are far from God. Trust the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The God who was pleased to save rebel sailors in the unexpected use of a rebel prophet. And yes, here at the end of our text, the God who is able to save rebel Jonah in the unexpected use of the sea. I say save because verse 16 is not the end of the story. Because the God who notices, the God who made the seas and the dry land, the God who does as he pleases has not forgotten Jonah. God notices Jonah in the waves sinking in the sea he has made and he is pleased not in Jonah's death but in Jonah's transformation. He is, he is the God who provides for this transformation in the most unexpected way. This is my fourth and final point. Verse 17, read with me. Now the Lord provided a... Hold on a second. Read with me. I was too quick. Ready? Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The silence of the storm has become the silence of the deep as we are dragged beneath the waves with Jonah. Unsure what is about to happen, we hold our breath as Jonah waits for his death and a shadow cuts through the silence of the deep and before we can register what happens, Jonah disappears into the darkness. What? The text tells us that a huge fish swallowed Jonah. That this was not some natural phenomenon, that God was behind this as much as he was behind the storm. He has now commanded one of his creatures, who is unlike the creature that bared his image and actually obeyed. God has been in control of the situation from the very beginning. From Jonah 1.1, God has been in charge. And here we are reminded again that he commands all of creation. A miracle has happened. Not just because Jonah was swallowed up by a huge fish, but what in the world was that? But because Jonah didn't die. Did you catch that? Jonah deserved death, and yet he's not dead. That is the miracle of God's mercy. By God's design, this predator has become a submarine to give Jonah time to be silent with him and his God. It is this verse that too often makes us stumble with questions of how. How did that work? I talked about it at the very beginning. It's an important question, but ultimately I want to say that it is an unanswerable question because the text does not bother to answer it. It does not explain the fish. It's not trying to. Questions like this don't really have an answer. We don't really know how. And the reason I'm saying all this is because to get caught up looking for the answer is to step outside of the story and miss God's point entirely. This is a miracle. And let's be honest, it's not even the hardest one to believe in the Bible. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this verse is not going to be a problem for you. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this verse is not going to change your mind. 
the story is not about a big fish. As one writer says, it has only a walk-on part. The story is about a big God who is willing and able to pursue us with his mercy. The God who does the unthinkable on purpose. The God who did not forget Jonah. And let me tell you this morning, people of God, the God who does not forget you. You see, the biggest surprise of this story is not the fish that God provided. It is that Jonah did not get what he deserved. That God provided mercy even before Jonah has a chance to obey. Did you notice that? Mercy precedes obedience, even as mercy inspires obedience. We do not take obedience out of the calculation, but we have to put it in the right order. Mercy never forgets, even if God in his mercy sometimes lets us get all the way down before he delivers us. Jonah went down to Joppa, and he went down into a ship, and down into the depths of that ship, and now he is down at the depths of all of creation. And there God is at work. You see, there's something in Jonah, something that has gripped his heart that up until now has remained dormant when everything has been good. But now that he has hit rock bottom, God is about to open his eyes and humble his heart. Now, that is chapter 2, so I don't want to get too far into it. But like some people say, sometimes, sometimes you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. At rock bottom, in the waiting room of God, Jonah sits for three days and three nights. And centuries later, it is this verse that is going to be in the mouth of another prophet of God, talking about salvation that God provides for people that are far from him. Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus turns to a crowd that is demanding a sign from him telling him, prove who you are who you say you are. And he says this, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, verse 40. But as Jonah has been to us three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the same way that Jonah was three days and three nights, the ancient equivalent of saying six feet under, so will Jesus, the Son of Man, really go into the earth and die. Be buried. For what? Die for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of all kinds of people. So that he could make a way back to God, Jesus took on human flesh and lived a perfect life. He he, he followed God's ways perfectly. He was without sin. Unlike Jonah, he did not run from God's call he ran to it. Like Jonah, he sacrificed himself for us, but unlike Jonah, he was not sacrificed for his sins. He was sacrificed for ours. And unlike Jonah, he really did die. God did the unthinkable and he died for us on purpose because he loves us. And he loves us too much to let us get to Tarshish. He loves us too much to let us drown in our sin to let us gasp for breath as sin floods our souls. God loves us too much and he showed us on the cross. The cross is the ultimate proof that God is trustworthy because he gave himself up for us. The ultimate proof that he loves us and is for us because he provided a way back to him. 
You see, by sacrificing his life, God has done the unthinkable in Jesus and provided a way of salvation for rebels like you and like me. And that means he is a God we can trust. Because he went that far. And this morning he's calling to you, whether you're a Christian or not. In Christ, he has shown you mercy, he has shown you love, and he is worthy of all of your trust and your worship. And this morning, the question is, do you trust a God who does the unthinkable on purpose? Do you confess your sin and look to him for salvation? True confession and repentance means turning from your sin and turning towards that God. We need to trust in the God who does the unthinkable on purpose. Purpose, and the most unthinkable thing he could do was to come and save us. And this morning, as we pray, my question is, do you think that he might do what you might believe to be unthinkable and call you to himself? What you might think is unthinkable, asking you to come to him. There are some of us here who have never been with God or have been with God and have walked away. And you're worried. You're worried that he doesn't want you or doesn't want you back. This morning, I want you to know that mercy has been pursuing you all of your life. And even if you walked away, mercy started pursuing you the moment, the first step you took away from his presence because he loves you. As we pray, would you come to him? Would you be reminded that he is the God who calls and the God who has done the unthinkable because he loves you? Would you pray with me? Great and merciful God, this morning we are in awe of your love. We are grateful for your mercy and we confess that too often we forget your goodness. Too often we struggle to trust your goodness when we can't see it. This morning we confess and we repent and we pray that you would remind us how in Christ you have noticed us. How you, creator over everything, you, king who, do, who does as he pleases, that you have provided salvation for us in Christ. We thank you for Jesus and we pray that you would help us to trust in you who do the unthinkable on purpose out of love for us, out of your mercy and your grace. We pray all this in the name of the Savior who showed us that mercy. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate how God uh, speaks to us through his word and through his spirit.
before Pastor Eric comes to give the benediction, hear these words of blessing from our choir. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. And give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. And be sent in the blessing of God in his compassion, grace, and mercy to be a blessing to others, to show that compassion and mercy to others wherever the Lord has placed you. People of God, you are sent.
All right. That's fine. Yes. All right, guys. You feeling okay? I don't know if I should read scripture from the Bible or just uh, monitors. So... So how about we do this, Amy? Let's do greater. Well, first, Josh, is Sarah doing the 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 announcement still at the very start? Still, okay. All right. All right, guys. So we got live announcements from Sarah before we go into it this morning. So live announcements. These are the live These announcements. Are the announcements. Um, and then I'll just say, stand and sing with us, and that'll just be the cue to. Yep, perfect. And then we have <laughs> Mighty Warrior going right into Crater, then your love. Yep. And then Scripture, and then Living Hope, and coming out of fountain. So I think for sake of time, let's. Skip the opener and do greater than your love going into scripture, going into living hope. Okay? Let's do that.
Christ. Let's read together 1 Peter 1. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 8 continues saying, through you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of our souls. Spoke your name. 